My name is Michael Hammond, and I serve as president of Gordon College here in the North Shore, Massachusetts. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Now, as some of you may know, my wife Jennifer and I and our, our six children relocated to Massachusetts about a year ago to begin serving at Gordon. We've had a wonderful transition. We've really grown to love the area, but we're originally from the Midwest, from Indiana. And so many New Englanders sometimes are a little curious about what we're doing here, if we're gonna survive New England. We've actually loved it. Gordon's is one of the best Christian colleges anywhere, and that's really the, the call that brought us here. We're blessed to serve there alongside so many dedicated people, many of whom have been part of Grace Chapel since its founding, and, and many who are still part of the, the church here today. Now, leading a college is really rewarding work. There's a special relationship at places like Gordon among the faculty, staff, and students. And when I meet alumni, they speak so highly of their experiences on campus because of the relationships that, that point them toward Christ. And when I ask our people what keeps them committed to serving at Gordon, they always mention the students. Gordon's a missional place where we take the Bible seriously, even as we study all subjects in the academic curriculum. And we pray that every student who comes to Gordon will leave with a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, recently I was out on the road to meet some alumni and heard a, I heard a great story from a Gordon graduate uh, remembering his time on campus. He recalled a class with a legendary philosophy professor. This class got into the deep ideas about the meaning of life. And one day, a student couldn't hold out any longer and he raised his hand to ask a question that had been simmering throughout the weeks of the course. He asked this pressing question and the professor sat back and answered, now that is an interesting question. And that was it. He didn't give a simple answer. He didn't tell him the easy way to think about that deep question. And this alumnus said, it's been almost 30 years. I still don't know the answer to the question. But he was still thinking about it. Well, let me ask you a question about questions. What is the most important question in life? Now that sounds like a question from a philosophy class. But consider it for a moment. What is the most important question? Questions are vital to a well-lived life. We ask questions for a variety of reasons, sometimes out of ignorance, but often out of curiosity. We've all heard that the only stupid question is the one not asked, which points back to a desire to discover and learn. There's so many deep questions. Why am I here? What is my life's purpose? Who's my soulmate? How could I be successful? Lately, we might be asking what caused the Red Sox to go into a losing streak. These are all valuable questions. Our faith is driven by questions, questions of good and evil. Why is there suffering and injustice in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or why did I have to lose a person who was close to me maybe the death of a loved one. How can I know right from wrong? Some questions seem to repeat every day in our households. When will we eat? Do I have to? Why? Which of course is always answered with, because I said so. Or how about the legendary question from the back seat? Are we there yet? Yogi Berra once in response to a reporter's question answered, I wish I had an answer to that question because I'm tired of answering that question. Experts may propose a variety of most important questions for you to ask yourself for your own personal emotional health, including 
What is my life plan? What are my insecurities? Am I happy? What do I need to forgive? Or even do I have enough money to retire? But all of those questions focus on us doing the asking. When we consider the most important question, it may well be that it is a question we have to answer rather than ask. Let's examine a passage that shows an exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Here we will see Jesus ask a question that each of us is also called to answer. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, first, it's interesting to note that the passage gives us the location of this exchange, Caesarea Philippi. This was an area known for both political power and Roman mysticism. The region was home to the worship of Roman gods and a temple built to honor Roman rulers. Jesus asked the disciples his question in the shadow of a seat of both pagan religion and political power. Now, in this conversation, Jesus poses a fascinating question. Who do you say that I am? But he starts off by asking what people are saying about him, a different question completely. It's kind of like asking, what's the word on the street about my reputation? And Jesus had made an impression by this point in his earthly ministry. He'd performed multiple miracles of healing. He'd preached the Sermon on the Mount, walked on water. He'd withstood the temptation in the desert, as well as many trap questions from Pharisees and Sadducees. So people were definitely talking. And the disciples recount those rumors, the hearsay. Some had heard that Jesus was a reincarnation of Old Testament prophets, or some even thought that he was John the Baptist in a different form. But Jesus clarifies, this is not a question of hearsay. He wants each of them to give their own personal interpretation. These disciples had traveled with Jesus and had witnessed many miracles. They had seen with their own eyes Jesus reveal himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He had calmed the storm. He had fed the 5,000. He had dined with tax collectors and other sinners who were rejected by their neighbors. The disciples themselves had been sent by Jesus to do miracles in his name. So these disciples should have known the answer to that important question, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that each of us is called to answer. Now in this passage, we're provided with Peter's confession. His answer to the question is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
We live in a, a confused age, uh, an age with a multitude of questions and even more opinions that sometimes substitute for answers. And yet this question transcends all others. Each of us is asked to account and answer for this question. Who do you say that I am? Romans 14, 12 explains that each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So as Peter hears this question, he provides the clear answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And note that Peter's answer is not merely because he was paying attention. Jesus calls him blessed. Blessed not because he got the answer correct, but because the acknowledgement of Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, and Son of God is only known through the power of God. And Jesus calls him Peter, part of his name that is literally interpreted as rock. He suggests, Jesus suggests here, that this is a revelation from God given to Peter and the apostles. And this revelation is the foundation for the church. And we know through Acts, the epistles of the New Testament, and church history, that these apostles took that true confession throughout the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They spread the evangel, the great news of victory over the enemy that was brought by Jesus Christ over sin. Peter's status is his confession, the God-revealed proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. That confession is the reason that Jesus grants him a new name. That confession is the answer to the question that we are all asked. And that confession gives us power to move beyond ourselves. In verse 20, we see that Jesus commanded the disciples to not share who he was. Not yet. This is a matter of timing. Later, Jesus will give the Great Commission and command us to spread that word. But at this point, Jesus knew that his ministry was to continue, and he did not want the disciples to take this revelation as a sign of revolution. Remember, this is taking place in a city known as a seat of pagan religion and political power, but Jesus was not about to trade his calling for a political revolution. This passage reveals three lessons for each of us. First, the most important question is Jesus asking us, who do you say that I am? Now in my work, I sometimes see college students who are putting an enormous amount of pressure on themselves to succeed. Their definition of success comes in their answer to some basic questions. They may be asking themselves, how can I be successful, powerful, or even rich? How do I get ahead? Today, often students ask, what is my brand? How do I curate my image online using social media? How do I achieve success in life? And even what is my calling? Now, it's not just a younger generation that's asking these questions, which are more self-focused. We have uh, in the Gospels the example of James and John vying for a, piece, uh, a place of supernatural authority at the side of Jesus. In Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, we read this account. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John were not merely two of the twelve disciples of Christ. They were brothers who had worked together with their father, Zebedee, as fishermen. Their energetic spirit earned them the nickname Sons of Thunder from Jesus. And they were part of the inner circle of three disciples, along with Simon Peter, who were closest to Jesus. Now, in this account, they, there's a request. They, they come along with their mother. We could think of her as Mrs. Zebedee. And they, they come to Jesus with this desire to promote themselves. Their mother initiates the conversation, but James and John are, are, are all in on this. They say, we're ready to do this. And they're asking essentially the question, what's in it for me? Will you make me famous and powerful. It was all about their position. This is the wrong question. And Jesus explains to them that to be great, you have to be a servant. We have many examples of this in our world today. Selfish ambition, narcissism, and pride. All of us are tempted to ask, what are my rights? Where's my place? What's my share? Those questions take us away from serving others, the charge we see in this passage to James and John, and away from our mission in the church that we see in Matthew 16. Questions about our own identity dominate our thinking in our age. They shape who we are. Even when these questions are around positive aspirations, we can become self-focused in ways that draw us away from the most important question. We may ask, how can I be a good person? Or how can I do more to be a better husband or mother or, 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 or wife or father? We may find fulfillment as a husband or wife or son or daughter or in, in our family relationships. My wife and I personally have six children. We often seem inseparable from our role as parents. It's impossible for some of our friends to imagine us uh, without our kids. We actually love that. We love our family. We love uh, being a family of eight that does a lot together. It can be very rewarding and very consuming. And it is a good, virtuous thing to pursue strong families and marriages with a desire to fulfill God's calling on our lives. But even something this positive might tempt us to make that the ultimate goal in our life, just as we can pursue a career and, and, and have our spiritual life suffer at its expense. Each of us may project an identity that is positive, an identity as a parent, a husband or wife, mother or father, a spiritual leader. And that identity, even as a good thing, can draw us away from Jesus when we make ourselves our idol. So the first lesson is focus on the most important question. The second lesson the true answer to that most important question is revealed by God. It's not by our own efforts. And this is the heart of the gospel, 
that, that it's a free gift given to us, not something we work to earn. We are not alone in navigating this vital question. Jesus points back to the Father who reveals truth. The question, who do you say that I am, that Jesus asks, is not gleaned by repeating what we have heard or the gossip of the age. Our world traffics in rumors and hearsay, but fails to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth comes from our understanding of the Word of God. God reveals that truth to those who listen to His Word. Even Peter, who answered correctly, had an incomplete view of who Jesus was. Peter and the disciples saw Jesus and knew who He was, but not fully. They had to be restrained from misinterpreting the message of Christ at the wrong time, perhaps with a desire for political revolution. We see evidence of this later in the Gospels, uh, when Peter himself cuts off the ear of a servant boy as Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter's confession, though accurate, didn't demonstrate that he fully understood Jesus' plan. Now today, do we expect Jesus the conqueror? Maybe not, maybe not a political revolutionary. But we may expect Jesus to deliver us power, wealth, success. Have we made Jesus into something that serves our comfort instead of the Savior whom we serve? The second lesson, again, allow God to show us the answer to the most important question. Third lesson, our confession of Jesus enables us to be used by God. Jesus spoke powerfully to Peter and the disciples, giving them the power, the keys to the kingdom, as he called it. As people of God, we're called to serve, not to make a success for ourselves. So how does your acknowledgement of Christ, your answer to the most important question, change your everyday routine? What are your ambitions and how do you ask God for them? What makes you believe that you deserve them? And how might starting with the most important question change who you are? Many of us find our identity in our own hard work. There's a pride in work ethic and achievement that sometimes leaves no place for God. We can be convinced very easily that our own hard work, grit, and expertise earned all that we have been given. What holds us back from being used by God? You may have temptations or sin that keep you out of fellowship with God and other believers. It might be the sin of pride, trying to do these things yourself without relying on God. You may push others away and not allow God to use the body of Christ as a means of grace in your life. There's many examples of, of pride and independent thinking. In today's world, haughtiness is a virtue and modesty is for the weak. There are constant public displays of proud judgmentalism. Pride is a reliance on yourself and a rejection of God's proper place, a resistance to submitting to God in your life. Read through Proverbs and many other scriptures, and you see countless condemnations of pride. A couple that come to mind, Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart, and be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Later in the same chapter, Proverbs 16.18-19, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 3.34 tells us, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. 
This passage is repeated later in the New Testament in writings by both Peter and James. James 4, 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Tim Keller calls pride the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without even knowing. Many of our sins are public. We know they are wrong, and others will condemn us or judge us for them. But pride can be masked by our success. We can look good when we are high achievers. When we change our focus, however, from ourselves to Jesus, we're drawn to the truth. And this means letting the most important question change us as we acknowledge Jesus as the Savior and Redeemer and allowing his grace to change us. So what does this require in response? There's three lessons I think we should put into practice. First of all, take the focus off of your own self-fulfillment. I'd encourage you to contemplate the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? This question will transform your heart and draw you toward Jesus and away from yourself. Now, much of college life is oriented around students, as it should be. We want our students to succeed. We provide tutors, research assistants, uh, whole teams of professional staff that are tasked with student wellness. We play a great team of gourmet chefs that make home-cooked meals every day from scratch using only locally sourced ingredients. We've, we've come a long way in terms of uh, the, the cafeteria food that you may remember from your college days. And colleges today make every effort to recruit students with great campus programs, athletics, study abroad and ministry opportunities. And yet, I often remind our students that all of this is to help them become more in the image of Jesus so they can serve the world in need around them. These students and all of us need to be reminded, it's not about you. Remember that and focus on the most important question. Let it guide your actions and, and build a desire to serve. When we're motivated by that question, we'll walk in his truth. The overwhelming importance of that question makes our concerns for ourselves and earthly things fade. Secondly, Jesus calls us to himself. Draw your answer to that question from the word, from God, not from hearsay, gossip, or the opinions of our age. You may be hearing this and realize that you've settled for the world's answer to that question, who do you say that I am? You may be looking to the culture around you for a popular or acceptable answer to the question. You may have even made Jesus less than the Christ, the Son of God, because you settled for the chatter of our age. Ask God to change your heart so that your answer is in full submission to his place as your Savior and Redeemer. If you've never asked God to open your heart to Jesus Christ, this is a moment to consider that. Third, our, our true identity comes in our standing with Jesus Christ. Consider your identity. What are ways that your heart is drawn toward idolatry? Ask where you have pride in your heart and confess that sin to God. Or maybe it's another sin or other sins that are keeping you from fully recognizing Jesus and allowing his Holy Spirit to empower you. Take your sin to Jesus and confess. Allow him to draw you closer to his truth. 
Pray that he would move your eyes and your heart from yourself to him. Focus on the true question that transcends time. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That question draws us toward Jesus and the truth of God's word. It gives us power to worship him and to serve. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your intervention in our lives and the way that you draw us to yourself with this question. Who do we say that you are? And we acknowledge you as the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. We pray and believe that that will empower us to live lives that are in your image, to live lives of holiness, and to pursue ways to serve the world around us. We ask you to do it. We have confidence that you will in great faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.